You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit anthologypod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow me on Twitter at ovanthologypod. And if you'd like to support what we do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Uh, for exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to uh, podcast episodes. Um, yeah, there's a ton of stuff on there, and uh, I just got a new piece of uh, recording equipment that I'm very excited about. Um, I upgraded to the Rodecaster Pro 2, just in case you guys were curious. Um, so, and this is actually my first full-length episode that I'm recording with it after getting it today, so that's that's a lot of pressure. But anyway, um, so I'm going to be kind of playing with that a little bit and um, tweaking it and all of that. So expect a lot of content on Patreon if you guys are on Patreon, so go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, okay, so today on the show, I'm going to be discussing Kick the Can, which is the 21st episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on February 9th, 1962, and of course I will be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 28, The Unexplored. But first, I have a couple of things I need to um, bring up uh, on the podcast. Um, in the last In last week's episode, I forgot to mention that I... In just supreme boredom um, uh, on my Letterboxd account, which if, if you're on Letterboxd, follow me, it's uh, obsessive viewer. Um, so on Letterboxd, I went ahead and ranked all episodes of Black Mirror. Um, and I made like a list and everything. So it's there. I'll put a link in the show notes and everything. But um, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting, I should say, because this list is in order of basically being um from my memory so i have not watched black mirror in a while now so um what i'm planning on doing is whenever they announce when the new season is going to come out i'm going to probably just watch the series again um (laughs) before um the new one comes out um i'll probably watch it more passively and kind of on in the background and i'll be interested to see how that uh, ranking kind of switches and changes up as I kind of refamiliarize myself with Black Mirror. But if you're interested in what my ranking is um, of all of the episodes and Bandersnatch, um, check out my list on Letterboxd, link in the show notes. And of course, the show notes of the podcast can be found at anthologypod.com slash 085 and also in the notes section of your podcast app. Um, the other thing I want to bring up is I got a very nice email from a listener, um, recently, uh, from, uh, from a uh, listener named Steven, and I'm going to go ahead and read just a part of the email just because I want to, uh, kind of just share that it was very nice and, and very nice of Steven to take time out of his day to email me. So, um, here's part of Steven's email. 
He says, quote, I've been meaning to write for a while now because I found your podcast during the summer. I wasn't sure I'd like yet another Twilight Zone podcast, but I think the difference you bring to the subject really makes it worthwhile. I especially like that you've realized that Twilight Zone and other series are highly dependent on the much earlier science fiction theater and Tales of Tomorrow. Um, and, uh, we exchanged some emails back and forth, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really flattered that I got that, uh, that, uh, very nice feedback and very nice email from Steven. So thank you, Steven. Um, and I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that you found my show. Um, yeah. And I just science fiction theater and tales of tomorrow and one step beyond and all the other shows, it's just this untapped, or or slightly un uh slightly buried treasure of sci-fi storytelling that I just I really I really appreciate. Um I'm I'm growing a very big fondness for it um as I under as I as I do this whole project and everything. So anyway, um yeah, so that is it for the um news and everything that I have. Um, I, yeah, so, um, yeah, I said episode, yeah, I said the title of the science fiction theater episode, didn't I? The Unexplored? Anyway, um, (laughs) sorry. Uh, yeah, so here I am. I'm going to go ahead and start, uh, my review of Kick the Can, which this is a pretty big episode. It was, um, obviously it was remade in the Twilight Zone movie, which I obviously hasn't, haven't seen yet, given the kind of, you know, um the the point of this whole podcast but it is one that has permeated pop culture for me at least in the title and that leads me to what i knew before watching kick the can for the first time like a week or so ago so i have in my notes uh i'm not sure what i ha- what i'm going to expect um it's weird um, <laughs> uh i like here's here's what i said um, I think it has to do with an elderly man, and when I hear the title Kick the Can, I immediately misinterpret it as Kick the Bucket, uh, which leads to me thinking about an elderly man facing his mortality. Um, and then I also, this is interesting, because I did not associate um, the phrase Kick the Can with a child's game. I thought of it as like the expression for like procrastination uh that's like kicking the can down the road and and coming to it later that like that kind of thing um if you're a an obsessive viewer listener um tiny uses that uses that um expression um every now and then and that's kind of what what kind of gets in my head about it or that's what got in my head about it and made me think that it might be something to do with that like maybe someone letting their life pass them by and everything um yeah so i thought that maybe it was about an old man who thinks he has time he has time to do the things he wants in life and ultimately doesn't have the chance and um I was kind of working under the assumption that the Twilight Zone may give him a final chance to do the things that he wants, kind of in the similar vein of One for the Angels, but a little bit less, like, um, deadly, I guess. Um, so that's where my head was at before I watched Kick the Can. Um, 
And yeah, so so obviously I didn't know much about it, and uh, I was wrong in several places. Um, yeah, so now uh, now that I've got those thoughts out of the way, I'm obviously going to be spoiling the episode from the jump from right now. So if you haven't watched Kick the Can, please come back and uh, or, or leave and watch the episode and then come back and listen to my review. I should note, obviously, I'm not going to be spoiling any aspect of the movie adaptation of it um, that Spielberg directed because I simply have no clue what he did with it. <laughs> I've not seen it, so don't worry about that. So, okay. So as is customary for me, I'm going to go ahead and read the plot summary for Kick the Can, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And the plot summary is as follows. An old duffer named Charles Whitley longs to escape from the four walls of the Sunnyvale rest home to a place where he isn't confined to vitamin pills and rocking chairs. Attempting to relive his youth, Whitley jumps through lawn sprinklers and makes faces at the residents, only to be mistaken as senile. Mr. Conroy, one of the residents, insists that growing old is a fact of life. Whitley believes that the fountain of youth isn't a fountain, it is a way of thinking. Late one summer evening, Whitley encourages most of the residents of Sunnyvale to sneak out and play a game of kick the can. The old people are having a ball outside on the grounds while Conroy alerts the manager of the retirement home. Outside, however, Conroy watches as young children, one of them the, the image of a young Whitley, run off into the forest to continue their game. So, uh, starring in Kick the Can as Charles Whitley is Ernest Truix, who is rounding out his uh, two performances in The Twilight Zone with this. So, this is his second of two Twilight Zone appearances, which is a much cleaner way of saying that sentence. Um, (laughs) uh, Previously, we saw his work in Season 1 in What You Need... Um, he played Pedot in that episode and I knew that he looked familiar when I was watching this episode and I couldn't place like where he was in the Twilight Zone realm and yeah, so he was in What You Need. And uh, a little piece of trivia about, about him is that, uh, his real life son played his son in this episode in the opening scene or the early scene. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. And then uh, co-starring as Ben Conroy is Russell Collins. And this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, but he does have a few kind of notable credits. Um, first, he was in Sidney Lumet's Failsafe in 1964, which just absolutely amazing movie. I absolutely love that. And Criterion has a very good uh, Blu-ray release of that. Um, and he, uh, let's see, so... Um, uh, Russell Collins also appeared in one episode of Out There in 1951, which was one of the earliest and shortest-lived sci-fi anthology series on, t- on TV. And uh, rounding out his notable uh, credits is that he was in one episode of The Outer Limits in 1964, titled Don't Open Till Doomsday. And uh, kind of rounding out the cast is uh, John Marley as Mr. Cox. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next we'll see from him is The Old Man in the Cave in Season 5. And a couple of notable credits from him is that he was in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959 titled Night of the Kill. And he was also in one episode of The Outer Limits, The Man with the Power in 1963, which I believe, I I really like that episode uh, from when I watched it. Um... 
some time ago, and I believe that that has Donald Pleasance as the titular man with the power. Um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, more information on that. Consult your uh, Outer Limits podcast with uh, Victor Gamboa. Uh, so, oh yeah. And rounding out John Marley's, uh, credits is that he also appeared in the Godfather, which I and Tiny and Ben just reviewed in our Ebert's Great Movies List episode, like part 12, I think, um, uh, on Obsessive Viewer. So check that out. Um, okay. So writer for this episode was George Clayton Johnson. And uh, this is his sixth of seven Twilight Zone credits, technically the last one where he has a written-by credit, though. Previously, we saw his work in Nothing in the Dark a few weeks ago, and uh, next we'll see is a story-by credit on Season 5's 90 Years Without Slumbering. Um, So that's interesting. Uh, Let's see, and then director for this episode, making his fifth of eight Twilight Zone works, is Lamont Johnson, who previously we saw his work in One More Paul Bearer um, a few weeks ago, and then next we'll see later this season, Four O'Clock. So yeah, so that's the talent rundown for um, Kick the Can. And uh, yeah, let me get into my review of the episode. So... Right from the outset, I have such an appreciation. I I can't remember if I said this in the last episode or not, but I have such an appreciation for the way that the episodes of the show seem to usually these days in this in this uh, stage of it. But I think mostly I'll have to go back and see how many it does this. But I really like how the opening shot is of a sky because I, and I think they did this in the monsters I do on Maple street, but is of a sky and then it pans down, um, to, you know, whatever the location is for the episode. And it kind of has this feeling of emphasizing, um, emphasizing that, you know, we're coming down from another dimension or something is coming down from another dimension into our world. Um, kind of in a way that's kind of a little bit abstract, but, um, I don't know. I got kind of a little bit of enjoyment out of that. Um, so, uh, we open on Sunnyvale Rest, which is a home for the aged, uh, located at 478 Tranquility Lane. And I thought Tranquility Lane is a nice touch and very apropos, um, specifically because it's, you know, it, it has that false sense of soothing nature to it like it kind of it stands to reason like yeah okay a retirement home would be in would be on a play on a street called tranquility lane but just the idea of like that gives the impression that it's you know that it's tranquil it's it's calm it's it's like uh very nice there (laughs) but it also kind of feels a little bit disingenuous, like it's trying to put on this thing. And that kind of runs through the whole episode where, you know, we get a re- uh, recurring theme of um, of Charles's, Charles being threatened with basically not necessarily being sedated, but being isolated specifically because he's not being this tranquil, you know, resident of the retirement home, which is just it it kind of makes the the street name a, an interesting misnomer. So, um yeah, and then also just in terms of just the opening of this episode, um when we see that sign and everything, it 
It's accompanied by this very soothing soundtrack, which is also very nice and kind of lulls us into this, uh, into the story pretty quickly and pretty, pretty nicely. And then we get inside of Sunnyvale and, um, and so inside Sunnyvale, we see several people like this kind of arthritic looking man in a wheelchair being wheeled away. We see an old man with a cane wandering the room, kind of, kind of absently and then we see a nurse cross uh cross the hallway and it's kind of making this really interesting point to to it seems like it's really making a point to really highlight the elderly nature of the residents and the complacency and the level of just you know not wanting to do anything the um lethargy of the um uh, of the residents and it kind of it's 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 small it's short but it it really makes its point and it's uh it's kind of kind of in, impressive um and immediately from from my uh my immediate thought is i really think that this was the same set that they used for the lateness of the hour in season two i couldn't find anything to corroborate that or anything um, but it does look very familiar, like the stairway and then the room that they go off of to the left of the stairwell looks exactly like the, you know, the, um, the room that, um, the parents were sitting in, in the lateness of the hour. And then I also thought briefly that it kind of looked a little bit like static also, at least the TV room in static, but I don't think that that's right or anything. Um, so then we get our first introduction of Charles uh, Whitley. Um, that's his name, right? Yeah. Uh, Charles Whitley. As he's descending the staircase, he's dressed very nicely. He is, uh, he's, vest- he's dressed very sharply. And for a second, I thought that he was like a doctor, that he was like on call, like doing a house call there. But immediately, you know, it's very clear that he's a resident because he says out loud to really nobody in particular, he says that his son is coming to get him. And then he has this this like little tinge of of boyhood charm where he says bye bye and then and then walks away. Um, It's it's a really interesting introduction to the character because it is playing up that very, very childlike whimsy um that he embodies throughout the episode and tries to tries to get the other characters you know to buy into particularly ben which we'll talk about in a bit like that i mean the the characterization between uh and the and the bond between ben and charles is just absolutely stunning writing i i love this episode for that reason so immediately, as he says that his son is coming to get him, I immediately have a bad feeling for Charles. Um, and I think it's 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 due to the fact that he's saying it to no one. No one's really reacting. Um, and that just makes me feel anxious that there's going to be, uh, you know, that there's going to be a switcheroo. There's going to be something that will prevent him from getting it. I was un- I was under the impression or assumption that, I had like I had this very bad feeling that his son just wasn't going to show up. And that I think also is really interesting because that really <laughs> kind of speaks to my uh, insecurities, my my kind of anxieties and everything, because I don't know, just the fact that he made a big to do about going home with his son. I immediately thought like, OK, this is the show setting it up so that so that the son is not going to show up so that 
the son is going to leave him there and then he's going to have to walk walk back in with his head slunk low and he's he's going to be embarrassed and everything i kind of thought about that um yeah i just i, I just i immediately thought of that and then almost as soon as i thought of that um his son pulls up. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that's good. So uh, the other residents watch as he gets in the car and leaves. Um, and I kind of felt like like as, as the car was pulling up, as he was getting in the car, the camera kind of focuses on the residents on the porch, very much like staring, staring in kind of a sense of wonder. Um, and it really made me think that the the Sunnyvale rest is kind of like a prison like place for that play for, for those characters, which is kind of true. It's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like they're, you know, serving out a sentence and that their sentence is a death sentence because they're going to die eventually. Um, and that's their final place that they're going to reside. And I just think that that's really interesting to show the characters, um, on the porch watching as Charles makes, for lack of a better word, makes his escape. I just think that that's really interesting. But then, um, oh, oh, wait, let's, let's back up a little bit because then we see kids kicking a can. And my immediate thought was, oh, it's a reference to a game, not the expression that I said. So yeah. Anyway, so then we get the car, we, uh, we see the car stop and we get the heartbreaking, the heartbreaking moment where his son says that he didn't say he was coming to get him. He said that he was coming to talk about, uh, talk about things. Um, in that he said that he would come and that they could talk about it. And that is just heartbreaking to me. And what I really appreciate about the show is that I really like how we don't get this long drawn out sequence that's playing up Charles's emotions. It's not, it's not like we have this suspenseful moment where, um, where Charles's son is saying like, you know, I, I, I thought about it and, and I just, I just can't make it work. I'm so sorry. Like it doesn't play it up for melodrama. It just has us in like kind of a fly on the wall kind of aspect where we're in the car, we hear part of the conversation, but we can infer everything from it. Um, the suspense aspect of it is from Charles walking down the stairs, walking outside, walking to the car. That's where the suspense lies. That's where the drama and suspense lies. And I really appreciate that. Um, so then his son drops him back off and immediately just, I just thought that was just so sad. <laughs> it was so depressing. Um, as, as Charles walks across the, across the street, he, uh, watches the kids that are now playing hide and seek and a kid kicks the can. And that's when, uh, that's when Charles picks it up. He picks it up and starts kind of wandering over to the tree. And at this moment, I really felt that this was giving me extreme walking distance vibes from season one. And it just really feels like, like that just has this, this energy of nostalgia and of, um, just a, a lot of the same kind of themes of like lost youth and reclaiming your youth and everything. So immediately right off the bat, I was thinking about walking distance, which is one of my favorite episodes of the show. Um, which also builds this up to be, you know, um, 
it it is a very very high bar for for this episode to cross so or to clear so i'm yeah so i was already kind of setting it up for failure in my own way in my own like involuntary way um so <laughs> a kid comes out from the from the woods and says hey that's our can uh we need our can back and charles just ignores him and he sits under the tree holding the can kind of pondering his life and then and then I have in my notes, <laughs> the camera pans and a wild surling appears because Rod uh, comes out from behind uh, from behind the trees and bushes, similar to how the kid came out from the from the wooded area to tell Charles that uh, it was their can that he took. Um, but Rod Serling comes and we get our opening narration, which I will play right now. Sunnyvale Rest, a home for the aged, a dying place and a common children's game called Kick the Can that will shortly become a refuge for a man who knows he will die in this world if he doesn't escape into the twilight zone. So this is a very short, very succinct um, opening narration. Uh, very interesting and brief. I really thought it was interesting that um, he refers to Sunnyvale Rest as a dying place. Um, I thought I thought that was kind of interesting, a little dark and everything. Um, and I was very intrigued by the way that he says that uh, the children's game will become a refuge for uh, Charles. And at that point, I had no idea what that could possibly mean, but I was very curious to find out. And Find out I did. So after the commercial break, um, I really, really liked the shot that is um, shot <laughs> over the opening credits where we see Charles looking out the window while the kids play outside. Um, I find that I like I like it because the perspective is interesting. Um, we're situated over Charles's shoulder as he takes up half of the frame. And that kind of makes the kids in the frame on the left side of the screen look even smaller as a result. And I really appreciate that. So then Ben comes in and this is our introduction to Ben. And he immediately comes across as a curmudgeonly old man. Uh, he gripes about the kids playing too loudly um, and we see the first like glimpse of Charles and Ben not seeing eye to eye on things because Charles just defends the kids. It's not, he isn't bothered by them. Um, he says that kids need to play and everything. That's just what they do. And then Ben, uh, Ben kind of has a retort to him. It's like, well, they can play somewhere else or whatever. Um, overall in this exchange, Ben really seems to, to a certain extent, resent the youthful energy of the children, but he's more pragmatic about it. He knows his time is past him, and he kind of has this, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder that he doesn't, I don't know if it's necessarily that, that he doesn't want to be reminded of, like, youth, or he just doesn't want to be burdened by the knowledge that, you know, he's older, he's old or whatever. Um, but he is very much a kind of pragmatic character in this, in this episode, as I'll discuss as I go on. Um, and then he also has a little bit of an edge to him. Um, mind you, this is before 
we know that they're presumably lifelong friends. Um, but Ben says, uh, he, he mentions like, Oh, your own son turns, turned against you today. And Charles just immediately goes into defense mode. He, uh, starts def- defending his son's decision and just right there that paints him as just a super kind, generous man who is kind of sweet and, and kind, kind natured. Um, and he kind of says, in a way that just reminds me, I just realized like exactly what it reminds me of. It reminds me of um, Morgan Freeman in the Shawshank Redemption when he says that uh, they're not going to, spoiler for Shawshank Redemption, um, they're not going to throw up any roadblocks for an old crook like me when he's when he's going to Zewatanejo. Um, but Charles, or yeah, Charles says something like, oh, they don't need an old foggy like me or something. I don't remember the word he used, uh, or an old dullard like me or whatever. No, this place is just good enough for me. Um, and there is just the layers to that. <laughs> like on one hand, he is looking on the bright side of things, but the empathy that runs through the episode just really makes this, makes like his whole contentment, um, in this moment feel all the more tragic and, and, depressing. Um, but it's quickly kind of washed away because he starts talking kind of wistfully about kick the can. And that's when I noticed like, oh, he's still holding the can. (laughs) Um, and it's showing that he's still, still holding out hope for kind of reclaiming his youth, which is, is a pretty cool, um, little prop element. And then he mentions that kick the can is like a summer ritual, for kids. And that also, again, really gave me some walking distance vibes. It really made it, uh, feel like just, just very, like it, it reminded me of, um, talking about like kind of wistfully talking about the, um, the bandstand and, and, uh, the calliope and stuff and walking distance. So I just, I, I don't know. There was something to Charles's kind of little, monologue or soliloquy or whatever, um, about kick the can being a summer ritual. And then he kind of has this leap in logic that I'm kind of working out myself. Um, (laughs) so I'm working out if I'm okay with it, but he says that it's almost as if kick the can keeps them young. And like, it really feels like a bit of a stretch in logic for him, but I also like it because his experience, it, it, for it, it, it really establishes and then furthers um, the idea that his experience with the Twilight Zone is of his own creation and it is of his own uh, volition, really, um, which I'll get more into that later. But he then kind of breaks breaks from his little um, kind of self-hypnosis and asks if Ben believes in magic. And that's when we learn that they are old friends and that... Uh, and like Charles kind of, uh, chides him and says like, he used to believe in magic. And I, I got very, uh, I, I appreciated this or I got, I got kind of tickled by this, but when he says that when he and Ben would cross street lamps, uh, Ben would say bread and butter. And like, I just, I was like, it just, had this kind of rel- uh, revelatory uh, reaction to me because if you heard my review of Nick of Time from season two, 
um, it that answers a question that I had. Like when watching Nick of Time, when William Shatner is walking with his wife and uh, they're about to cross the um, they're about to cross on opposite sides of a street lamp. Uh, William Shatner says bread and butter, and then, um, and then she says like, "Oh, stop that or whatever," and he's like, "Oh, just trying to save your life." And because I'm an idiot, I didn't know what that meant at all. But this kind of clarifies that because I now know that bread and butter is just a superstitious kind of phrasing and everything. So I don't know. I hadn't heard it before then, and I'd kind of forgotten about it, and then it popped up here, and uh, I learned something new today. <laughs> so. Uh, so yeah. So anyway, um, Charles kind of further gets into this little, uh, thought experiment that he has. Um, and he says that there may be people who stay young and at this point still, it kind of feels like he's grasping at straws, uh, in order to find a way to reclaim his youth. But what I like about that is that it has this undercurrent of optimism to it because it's not like he's trying to reclaim his youth because he missed out on experiences. And it's not like he's trying to steal someone else's youth, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, he just wants his youth back because he wants the happiness and energy associated with it and the innocence as well. So it just kind of paints Charles as this character who is just not resigned to his fate and is not ready to give up and throw in the towel and wait out uh, the last years of his life. And there is a just beauty in that um, that I find I've, I, that makes this episode really, really compelling and, and heartfelt to me. Um, and then he kind of goes on to say that maybe the fountain of youth isn't a fountain at all. And maybe it's a way of thinking of things. And I just... In terms of the Twilight Zone being like a moral, like an exercise in morals and um, creating moral stories uh, that have strong morals in them, um, this is a beautiful way to kind of just really kind of do the soft sell or soft pitch to us um, on that. And it's just, and it's beautifully written. Just maybe the Fountain of Youth isn't a fountain at all. Maybe it's a way of thinking things. I I, I really like that sentiment. Um, but then Ben, the ever, ever pragmatic character, says, your youth has been gone for 60 years. And then in, it's interesting because right after that, he pulls back and uh, he pulls back and says, what I mean is you've lived a full life, Charles. And again, definitely reminiscent of walking distance for me. It kind of gives that impression of the the uh, the one summer for every customer sort of idea that's present in uh, walking distance. But in this case with Charles, he doesn't feel like he's as greedy or resentful as Martin Sloan. He's definitely not as resentful. Um, and I think that that's the key difference because walking distance is somewhat of a cautionary tale and it is this story of Martin Sloan learning to be a kid again or learning to find his own bandstands his own calliopes and stuff um or his own band concerts um in his own world don't try to steal it from the like young kid version of himself um so it is this kind of course correction of this person's life here Charles 
wants to have another youth. He wants to do that again. He wants to, he, like I said before, he's not ready to throw in the towel. And I think that there's that that's kind of the key difference there. And I really, um, I, I really like the way that this episode plays out with that. And also, uh, the actor, uh, Truix, um, who plays Charles, he has this just kindness to his demeanor and this general kind of genuineness, um, that kind of comes through when he's, when he's speaking to Ben in, in certain respects. Uh, so I really like that. Um, yeah. So here's where we get another interesting kind of wrinkle to the plot and in another interesting avenue for the episode to go down because following his conversation with Charles, Ben goes to like the, the manager of the retirement community, uh, Mr. Cox. And he mentions how like, like he is clearly going there to voice his concern for, um, for, for Charles and his not sanity per se, but for his, for his kind of livelihood, for his, um, happiness, his mental stability. And Mr. Cox kind of takes that and it kind of comes across as him being a very tired and, and, um, ineffectual administrator because he takes that to mean that, you know, it's like he immediately kind of discounts it and says like, well, it's really sad when our residents go uh, like become senile and everything. Like for instance, I just had uh, you know, when, when that one guy threw the, uh, was caught with fireworks, that was a whole ordeal, which I thought was, a, was really good foreshadowing for, for the fireworks that are used later. Um, but he just kind of says, uh, well, he says every time one of our people goes and goes senile, I get a little cold inside. And then he talks about how even he has gotten old. And I just, I kind of love that because this isn't a story about losing your youth, but it's about the notion that we choose to get old. We choose to, you know, put away childish things. We choose to, to grow up and everything. And it's about someone defying that choice and seeking out their happiness in their own way, their childlike wonder, uh, reclaiming it. And with Mr. Cox, when he is talking about every time one of our people goes senile, I get a little cold inside. And then he immediately talks about how he himself has gotten old. He's been in this job for like 15 years or something like that. And it just feels like this lack of empathy. That's kind of a low grade lack of empathy in this scene, because he is saying that, you know, whenever I see these people go into you know, uh, go into a, a questionable mental state. And I see that kind of, you know, cognitive degradation, free band name, um, <laughs> like that makes me sad. I get a little cold inside. I don't think about how, you know, the residents feel. I don't think about their lives or anything. I think about that, how I think about how that's a reflection of me and how I'm getting old. And I just find that to be really, truthful to that type of person, um, in that type of person, in that position, in that role. And it's a good counter to Charles's, um, it, well, it's an interesting, like third, third degree 
of viewpoint. Um, so we have Charles who is very much whimsical and excited and he wants to reclaim his youth. We've got Ben who is very much like knows like, okay, well, you know, we're old, we get old, people are old. Um, let's go ahead and just live out the rest of our days here. And then we've got Mr. Cox who's like, oh, you know, it makes me feel cold and sad and upset when I see people aging, um, because of me. Because it because it reminds me that I'm aging as well. So I really like that. I like that kind of dynamic, um, and that those three competing viewpoints that um, that play out throughout the episode. So as Ben and Mr. Cox are leaving the office, they walk out into the hallway, and we see Charles, who is playfully pushing a wheelchair um, out into what I think is the foyer. And it shows that Charles is energetic. He's kind of bumbling. He's he's jumping around, and he's really trying to pep up the place. And that's when like he goes outside. He's making faces at all the residents. He's uh, looking at like, and they're they're all kind of in um, Ben's position where they're like, okay, this is silly. Let's not. You're going to hurt yourself. Let's not do that. Um, and then he runs through the sprinkler. Um, which is just, it's, it's a delight. Like the pure joy of that is so much fun to watch. And I just found it very charming. And in, then it just doubled down on it when he's like, come on in, the water's fine. I just, I love that so much. Um, and again, I've just got to reiterate how Mr. Cox's perspective brings about this just incredibly depressing angle to this episode because he tells Ben, he says, like, he's going to have to isolate Charles for a while. He's going to have to make sure um, that he's okay to be re reintegrated with the group in, in the retirement home and everything, because clearly he is losing his, you know, he, losing his marbles. And it's, again, it's furthering Mr. Cox's perspective on things and how it's just adamantly wrong and sad. Because to him, old people who have excess energy are facing cognitive degradation. Again, free brand name. Um, and that's specifically because it's not what the expectation of the residents is. It's not what they expect of them. So anything that's outside of that very clear parameter that they set for the residents there needs to be addressed as a threat or as a as a, as a negative and it's nothing positive. And it just, it just, I find that to be really, really sad and, and kind of truthful, um, in certain respects, it just feels just very authentic and, and depressing. Um, so after Mr. Cox says that to Ben, Ben then says right before the commercial break, that'll kill him. Um, putting, isolating Charles and having him be examined is going to kill him. And I really like like this is one of the great things about this episode is is the connection between Ben and Charles because I really really like how Ben isn't looking after Charles as a result of like resentment or jealousy or anything malicious he's simply concerned about his friend the and and in that there is kind of a certain tragedy um, because Charles and Ben have been friends for a very long time. And as established by the dialogue, Ben used to believe in magic. He used to be full of youth and energy, 
But Ben has grown up and he's become resigned to the fact that his life is nearing its end. And this is the time where he is, you know, living out the rest of his days in a not catatonic state, but in a very, a very mellow state. And what's what's interesting is Charles has just the exact opposite viewpoint. And that's where the conflict between them comes in comes into play. It's not a conflict of negativity. It's just a conflict of warring perspectives um, that I find really interesting. So then we get a commercial break, and when we come back, we are in progress, kind of similar to the car. Uh, scene. We're in progress of a, of a uh, conversation between Ben and Charles, where Charles just says like, oh, they think I'm senile or they're going to isolate me. Like what? Um, and Ben takes that to takes that moment to kind of plead with him to just act like everyone else. Please, you don't want to do this. Please just just behave. Um, and Charles refuses to act like I think he phrases it as like a vegetable on the porch. Um and Ben still kind of pleads, um, and they kind of have this back and forth. And um, I just, I really, I really like the, again, the warring perspectives of that. Um, and so it, it's not to the point. It's not like, it's not, it's not setting up, setting an example of like. Um, it's not the story isn't like about anti-conformity or anything like that. It's just about these two people who have different viewpoints of of how to live their life and one is acting out of concern for the other and the other is acting out of a very strong will and belief that he can retain his re reclaim his youth. So I just really like that. So after the conversation, Charles sees something on the bedside table and has an idea. Uh, when he looks over, it's the it's the can. I thought for a second because the can is a little bit not obscured, but it's kind of off center. And the more prominent image on the on the on the bedside table is a bunch of medicine. And I thought like, oh, is he gonna like skip his medicine or like I didn't know what they were going for, but um, no, he just saw the can and that's what gave him the idea, which comes into play very quickly. <laughs> he starts waking everyone up in the middle of the night. And um, there's a little bit of comedy there with the first man saying, um, saying like, what, is there a fire? Like very, very kind of casually and sleepily. Um, yeah. And then we get Charles kind of like having this this energy to him where he's like, he's waking everyone else up and he tells one person to go wake the girls up and wake so-and-so um, because it's really important. And at this point I had no idea what was going on. Like, I was like, what, like, what is Charles up to? And I, that's when I noticed that he was still holding the can, that he was holding the can again. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. This is, this is going to be interesting. Um, then it's revealed that he wants everyone to go outside and play kick the can with him, <laughs> which is, which is funny because on one hand it's like, it just seems so absurd, but it is done with such a genuine kindness, such a genuine feel that it plays out so well. And I, I just really respect the episode for that. Um, and so I just felt like there was a lot of charm to it as well. And at this moment, I kind of paused and I was like, I'm really curious how Spielberg handled it in the movie. Again, I haven't seen the movie. I'm not going to see the movie until after I finish the show. Um, so it's going to be a very long time before I get to this, get to the Twilight Zone movie, but 
what it makes me very curious about it is that Spielberg, and it's it's kind of fitting because I just I just rewatched Close Encounters of the Third Kind earlier today. Um, Spielberg has this grasp of like human emotion that's kind of um, wholesome. There's the wholesomeness to it, and like this story feels like it is very Spielbergian in its premise. And I'm very curious to see how, uh, how it plays out. I can't remember if the twilight zone movie was before or after amazing stories, which I know was the anthology show that he produced. Um, but I'm just assuming that his, um, segment of the movie is going to be kind of a Spielberg charm kind of factory thing, but we'll see. So the episode again is about, is also about like a kind of refusal to grow up and, um, throughout their little, um, meeting, um, uh, basically Charles puts out, puts out this whole idea. Like we need to go outside and play kick the can and become children again, or, or we'll be youths again and everything. We'll relive it. We'll relive the magic. We'll live forever and everything. Um, and then it's kind of like, this is funny, but one man says that he was the fastest on his block when they played hide and seek. And then later he repeats himself and like, I get the comedy of that. And I understand that it's done in a, in a facetious manner and it's done with, with this tinge of humor, but I thought it was just kind of really depressing <laughs> because like the comedy of that is that, oh, he's saying the same thing as before. Like, I understand the reason behind that because it is demonstrating that, yes, these are elderly people who are going to have like, they're, they're risking their, their, um, their health to do this outrageous thing. Um, and that's further showing that like, yes, he, he repeated himself. So that's, you know, something that's, um, is just evidence of his, of his old age. But again, it's kind of depressing. Like it's just kind of a bummer. Um, so I didn't really, uh, really like the comedy of that. So I don't know. And then another, uh, another resident, uh, kind of laments not being able to run like she did as a kid. And so Charles then kind of seizes that opportunity and he says, they can, we can still move. We can still do that. And he says this really interesting line. He says, maybe if the hunted are handicapped, maybe the hunter is as well. Meaning that, I don't know if he's referring necessarily to like the grim, Re grim reaper or death or, or ailments, whatever. Um, but I just find that to be really interesting. Like, like just the logic of that, like, well, if we are, handicapped. If we are in a, uh, position, uh, if, if we, if we work through the shortcomings of us, you know, being old and everything, maybe, maybe, you know, we can evade death and injury and everything. So I don't know. It's, it's an interesting kind of rallying, um, tone to put in. So then he, he asks if they can feel the power of the can, which I found interesting, like, uh, he, like specifically he asks if they can hear the sound of children outside and the soundtrack has like a little bit of children playing outside. Obviously it's the dead of, it's the dead of night. So I kind of interpreted that as 
the magic of the Twilight Zone itself beckoning them outside by having the sound of children outside the window. And I think that that is such a nice touch. That is such a nice, subtle touch to the episode. Um, and it kind of, uh, boisters, I guess, is that the word? I don't know. Um, it kind of emboldens Charles to plead with them. And he says, like, he says, I can't play kick the can alone. And I love Truix's performance here because, again, it feels so genuine and so steeped in kindness that his pleading for them to play with him doesn't come across as desperation. It doesn't come across as someone who is not sure how they uh, can, like, is, is, it doesn't come across as someone who's grasping at straws. I'll say that. It comes across as his attempt to rally the troops and do something good, not just for himself, but for everyone there. It, it comes across as this very empathetic uh, scenario where he wants his friends, he wants the people there to join him and reclaim their youth together. And I find that to be really interesting and further makes me just love the Charles character. And then... Charles wakes Ben up to get him to come play kick the can. And like at that moment, I kind of wondered, like, are they all going to be like transported into a place where they can be young forever? Or are they just going to die? Like I kind of thought of maybe a, um, uh, a stop at, uh, a stop at Willoughby kind of scenario where like, I was fearing that really. Um, because I thought that this was going to take a dark turn and be about Charles and his friends dying and their afterlife would be spent as children playing games, much like Willoughby. Um, and I've got to say, I'm so glad that that wasn't the case. It would have been way too dark and hopeless for me in a sense, even though it does have kind of a tinge of darkness at the end. Um, but it, like it's, it works so much better than, than the fear that I had of it, of it playing out the way that I thought it might. So, um, Ben resists again and Charles says that he's afraid. He says, you're afraid of new ideas to look silly and you're afraid to make a mistake. And, uh, he, he then kind of like, kind of his, closing argument, if you will, is that he says that Ben decided that he's an old man and that's what made him an old man. And again, Ben is very pragmatic. He says, your bones are old and they'll break if you run. Your heart and lungs are old. You're used up, worn out by a lifetime. And I just, I, I don't know. At this point, I just really thought that this is a much better exploration of aging than Static was, Static from season two, specifically because this isn't about regret. Um, it's about fighting that urge, that urge inside you to resign yourself to just, you know, health issues and resign yourself to a leisurely, if apathetic and lethargic life Um in, you know, the twilight of your, of your life. It's about rejecting that in doing something about it, being proactive, whereas static is about regret and about, um, and, and well, and to a lesser extent, walking distance as well. Walking distance and static are about re like revisiting your youth, whereas this is about reclaiming your youth and not being filled with regret, but just wanting more of it. And I find that really interesting 
as a dynamic for this episode. Um, and so Charles, finally, the like the end of the argument is that Charles says that he has to find out. Um, and he says, I, there's magic in the world. I know there is. And he talks very, again, very wistfully about talking about, um, and, and I love the dialogue here because he says, um, there's magic when I kissed Mary. And like, we don't know who Mary is, but we can imply, we can infer from it. Uh, from the text that he, that she she was his wife, and presumably she's dead now. Um, I would assume. Um, and so he says that kissing Mary was magic, and his son being born was magic. And then he looks at Ben and says, "Friendship is a magic thing." And this is why this episode is so incredible. Um, just hard stop. It is so incredible. It's celebrating life in a sense. Like, I love that this is about a man pursuing the Twilight Zone in a certain way instead of the Twilight Zone finding him. It's about putting faith into his will to manifest renewed youth instead of him stumbling into the Twilight Zone um, because he's seeking it out, which is appropriate since it's a Fountain of Youth story. And to be to be completely honest, despite my limited knowledge of the Fountain of Youth and everything, I feel like a big part of stories about the Fountain of Youth is about people pursuing immortality and pursuing youth. Um, it's just the cornerstone of that type of story. And here we have just a, the the same thing, but in a more positive and and non not non threatening way. Um, like the main crux of the drama in this episode is Ben fearing for his friend's mental well-being and physical well-being. He's not, he's like, he is trying to convince him not to do this, but it's also out of a, just a, a thing with, or, uh, out of a, out of a place of just wanting his friend to be okay. And I like, I'm floored by that. I'm floored by it. I think that that is incredibly well done in this episode. So, uh, following the conversation, Ben kind of sits down and then Charles says that, fine, I'll do it without you and, uh, walks out. And at that point, I'm just like, that's, that's really sad. That's depressing. Um, and I love this like escape sequence. It's just very charming and understated. Um, the whole group is mounting their escape to go outside and play kick the can, which this whole scenario is so absurd and so weird, but unlike, unlike last week's episode, unlike Rance McGrew, this isn't played for comedy. It's played for the drama and the whimsy of it instead of straight comedy. And I really respect the storytelling and the, and the tone that this episode strikes because it is a very serious and, and, uh, personal kind of story. It's this very serious and, um, relatable story about, you know, everyone ages, everyone, you know, everyone ages. Um, so I also just love the way that they're working together after, you know, it just gives this sense that Charles is this really good leader. And also it's kind of funny cause like there's a more cynical view of this that kind of feels like, like you can, there's almost a read of the story with Charles as a cult leader. Um, like it just feels like he's just, he's, he's kind of creating this cult like, uh, following and everything. 
Um, which also just as a brief aside, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before or somewhere on the podcasts that I do, but that just, that thought just kind of made me think of, uh, Heaven's Gate cult, um, and how in the nineties, when they all committed the mass suicide and everything, um, the footage on the news just creeped me out. The, the leader of the cults video, he didn't blink or anything. It's very creepy. So anyway, uh, now we get our um, kind of uh, callback or the close of the loop of, of the firecrackers thing because we have one of the residents uh, lighting firecrackers and throwing them out the window to distract the nurse person. Um, and at this point, I kind of wondered if Stephen King drew any influence from this episode when he wrote The Green Mile. Um, because there's parts in The Green Mile where uh, Paul Edgecombe is is an old man in a retirement home and kind of mounts an escape kind of thing. Uh, so kind of similar, but I don't know. Um, it's most likely yes. But anyway, um, then as the kind of escape is being hatched, we see Ben put his jacket on and immediately I'm like, Oh, okay, this is going to be great. He's going to, he's going to go out and join them. He's reconsidered. And then immediately it's like, Nope, he's going to Mr. Cox. And, at this point, I kind of stopped and I and I I knew that I was coming up on the end and I had to put in my notes. I actually stopped and put this in my notes. I hope no one actually dies in this story because I want an uplifting story. I want this to be a positive message thing because I am so enamored with the kind of uh, the heart of Charles and his his energy and everything. Um, so yeah, so I went into this, these final scenes with, uh, hope that no one would actually die. And, uh, that's when we get Ben yelling for Mr. Cox. And that's when I realized like, oh crap, he's not joining them. He's trying to stop them. And I just had this other, like this tinge of sadness there. It's just, it's kind of depressing that I was hoping that Ben would turn around, uh, his thinking. Um, but then again, Ben was trying to protect Charles. And like he even says to Mr. Cox, he says, you know, he basically tells him that Charles will be upset when he goes outside and he isn't playing, he isn't a child playing kick the can. He thinks that his friend is delusional. And it's, it's not a, again, it's not a malicious thing. It's not something that it's not, it's not like he is a villain who's like trying to, uh, as the expression goes, yuck, Charles is yum. Um, he's not trying to kind of poop on his parade. He is wanting to protect his friend and he is wanting to, he, that's his soul, his soul focal focus. He just wants to protect his friend and he does not want his friend to be, you know, to, to suffer a big jump down, uh, in his emotional state. So I just, I really respect that. I love that dynamic and everything. And then we get this really simple effect that goes a, goes quite a long way as they're going outside. Mr. Cox and Ben are walking outside and we hear Charles' voice, Charles's voice say uh, he's counting to play hide and seek, I think. And you hear the voices of him and I think it's, I think it's kind of, uh, in, in a, in a cacophony of voices, I think of, of like laughter and everything, but you hear it shift into young Charles or Charlie's voice. And it's a very simple effect. Cause it's not like they, it's not like they distorted it and tried to just do like a, 
a um a clean like transition instead it has this like it has like this double speak kind of thing it has this thing where you hear charles's voice overdubbed over charlie's voice and then they switch around so it's like charlie's voice is dubbed over charles's voice and then it's eventually just charlie's voice and i just i really like that i thought that was really effective and immediately i was like okay they turned into kids that's very nice that's really cool and uh and then the look on ben's face is also uh a little bittersweet because he's just kind of dumbfounded by it and then we get the ending that is just really really kind of a downer and and just very sad and uh just a downer really because um ben goes up to the kid and asks if that's charlie he says hey charlie it's me it's benny um and charlie doesn't recognize him because he's a child now and ben says ben asks him repeatedly please take me with you take me with you and that is just so depressing because ben missed out on reclaiming his youth he missed out on spending i don't maybe another lifetime maybe eternity i don't know um with his best friend as a child like playing playing childish games and everything he missed out on that and it's about like the episode is kind of about like being a being a uh, pragmatic and giving giving in to that and leading to just loss and it's just this, it's just this very sorrowful moral for ben and again he didn't do anything wrong he was acting in the logical sense and he was trying to protect his friend and wanted to keep him out from keep him out from being isolated and being, you know, poked and prodded and, and analyzed and everything like this was a very noble, um, approach that Ben had to the entire like circumstances that he found himself in. The only thing that he, the only like crime he committed was that he didn't believe. And there's just so much sadness in that to me. Um, and it's it's a little heartbreaking. It's a little heartbreaking. And I just want to also point out as we kind of wind down and everything that I really love the way that Ben at the end of the episode his experience sort of in a in a in a weird sense kind of mirrors Charles's son rejecting Charles at the beginning of the episode because on one hand we have Charles missing out on leaving the retirement home and living with his relatives in a more youthful environment um where he's he's de- but he's denied this and forced to go back into the retirement home retirement home to live out the rest of his twilight years at the end of the episode ben doesn't believe that the opportunity exists for him to reclaim his youth and because of this he misses his chance and is forced to go back into the retirement home um so maybe it's not and maybe they're not exact mirrors of each other but it's a sad and touching story about these two friends that the beginning of the beginning of the story for one friend is the same as the end of one story, the end of the story of the other friend. And it just, it's, it's a really interesting, um, interesting storyline really. Um, and I think in the closing moments when, uh, Ben is walking back in, which again, it like, that's also really sad. Like everyone's gone. Like most of the residents are gone. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's, that's even more sad and depressing. Um, 
but as he's walking back in, I feel like the music, I, I don't know necessarily if this is the case, but I feel like the music was actually used in walking distance. Um, I can't say for sure. Um, but I feel like that was the case. Um, so yeah, so Ben walks back into Sunnyvale alone and I put in my notes, this is a beautiful episode, just absolutely stunning. Um, amazing. So then we get Rod Serling's closing narration, which I will play right now. Sunnyvale rest, a dying place for ancient people who have forgotten the fragile magic of youth. A dying place for those who have forgotten that childhood, maturity, and old age are curiously intertwined and not separate. A dying place for those who have grown too stiff in their thinking to visit the Twilight Zone. So my overall thoughts is that this is just a very lovely and sorrowful episode. And I think that the closing narration really nails it, that um, the the place of Sunnyvale rest is, uh, as, as he says, a dying place for ancient people. And I like how that is kind of switched around or it's, um, altered from the opening narration where he says that it is a, okay, where is it? I'm scrolling. Okay. Where he says that it's a home for the aged. Um, and like the place itself is a dying place, but, um, here he says that it's a dying place for ancient people who have forgotten the fragile magic of youth. So it's not like the place is this terrible place. It's the attitude. It's the, it's the, uh, the personal position that you bring to it. Um, that is, is what makes it, you know, a dying place, a prison of sorts. So I don't know. I just really, I really like that. Um, okay. So as far as trivia for kick the can, um, I don't have much just that obviously this was remade as a segment of twilight zone, the movie in 1983, uh, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, of course. And then the only other piece of trivia, I thought that this was really pretty funny, honestly, is that, um, George Clayton Johnson didn't apparently didn't like Spielberg's take on his story. Um, in the movie version. And I guess that he, like he, I guess he wrestled with giving the rights to Steven Spielberg, I guess. Um, but he did offer them notes. And when he saw the finished product, uh, he saw that they had implemented some of his ideas and he leveraged that for more money, (laughs) like after the fact. And I, uh, I hope I'm getting those details right, but I just, I, I appreciate that. I think that that was uh, a lot of fun. Um, a fun little tidbit. So, um, that's really all I've got for kick the can. So, um, yeah. So uh, let me know what you thought of kick the can and, uh, and let me know what you thought of the sound quality on this because it is new equipment and everything once again. Um, so we'll see. Um, yeah. So, uh, now I'm going to wind down with, of course, my thoughts on an episode of science fiction theater, um, so I'm going to play the little, uh, the, um, jingle here or the opening theme music for it here. Mm-hmm. 
So this week um, I'm reviewing The Unexplored, which is science fiction theater season one, episode 28. Um, it is available online to view at dailymotion.com and I believe on YouTube as well. Uh, this episode originally aired November 5th, 1955, and the synopsis, courtesy of IMDb, is a parapsychologist has his funding cut at a college. In a last-ditch effort to prove the worth of his research, he uses techniques he's developed to try and locate a member of the college staff who has gone missing. Uh, this episode was directed by Eddie Davis, written by Arthur Weiss, and stars Kent Smith, Osa Masson, Harvey Stevens, George Eldridge, and Madge Kennedy. And so, as is usually the case, we get a little pre-show um, demonstration from Truman Bradley. And in this demonstration, he uh, is showing, uh, he shows a, an electric eel in a tank uh, with light bulbs kind of positioned above it. And they, like, he's showing that, like, the energy of the eel can light one of the light bulbs. So he says that living tissue can create, um, living tissue can, can carry a current or whatever. So it stands to reason that obviously human beings can do this. Uh, human beings can conduct electricity and everything. And he uses that as like a, like to imply that there's a scientific possibility for clairvoyance, um, and kind of like psychic readings and everything, which is the theme of the story. So <laughs> that's fitting. So this episode is pretty solid. Um, basically Alex, uh, the main character, he's the parapsychologist. He isn't taken seriously. He does this demonstration where he like hypnotizes a woman and, uh, uses like a handkerchief to have her read, um, read a book that she can't see. And it's, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool like way to introduce it and everything. But, um, he's just, it's very much that first act goes into detail about showing, like showcasing to us that he is, um, you know, not a respected, uh, a respected kind of scholar in his field or anything. Um, the idea of clairvoyance and psychic powers are pretty much laughed at in his social circles. Um, even at home, like he finds out that he loses funding and then he's talking to his wife and his wife like is kind of belittling him and, and real, she's, she's doing it in a caring way. She's, she's saying that like, um, uh, she's, she's trying to get him to do something that's a little bit more stable and do something that research something that isn't, you know, being laughed at or anything. Cause she doesn't believe in it. Um, so she doesn't approve it or anything, approve of it or anything. And then the kind of wrinkle happens where they find out that a man from the college has gone missing. So from there, um, some colleagues of his at this like, kind of snooty kind of dinner party gathering thing, they're talking about the missing man and they say, like they kind of goad him into uh, using the parapsychology to find the missing man. And that's all I'll say really about the plot and everything. But uh, suffice it to say, he uses kind of some kind of psychic powers uh, or someone does to find where this man was or is or 
will be. We'll leave it vague like that. Um, one thing I really didn't like about this episode is uh, there are a couple of scenes where um, Alex is hypnotizing and putting putting a character under his spell. Um, and in order to do that, he has this piercing like tone thing, um, this piercing, uh, constant tone, kind of like a sensor beep, like, like that, like just, just like that. And it's prolonged. It's extraordinarily loud. And like, I was getting annoyed because it goes on way too long. And yeah, it just, it, it was really annoying. Um, but there were, there was one pretty interesting kind of camera technique. It's very simple. It was a very simple edit and everything, a very simple sequence, but basically he's trying to hypnotize a woman. Um, and when the piercing sound thing doesn't work, he uses a metronome and then, uh, the metronome scene, like we see the metronome and then it cuts to the woman's face and it's like cross cutting between the metronome and the woman's face, metronome and woman's face. And each frame or each cut, it zooms in a little bit closer and a little bit closer to both the metronome and the woman's face. So I just, I don't know. I just kind of really liked that. It's very, very simple technique and everything, but I just, I really liked it. Um, so the way that the episode plays out is relatively satisfying. Um, I I really kind of appreciated and enjoyed on an ent- entertainment level the way that the episode uh kind of depicts clairvoyance and psychic powers like the way that it, it the the episode goes to a strong length to explain those phenomenon phenomena as uh with scientific backing and it's not like it's, I mean, it's hokey, it's weird and everything. It's outdated, but, um, I just, I thought that it was, it was charming that it went to the extent to try to explain it. Um, and I really like, uh, how the drama element of, uh, of the episode isn't necessarily in, well, it is in, in the psychic stuff, but also the added element of the college faculty people goading Alex into trying it, um, kind of with a tongue in their cheek kind of thing. So I don't know, but anyway, the way it plays out is pretty satisfying and pretty fun. Um, although it does have kind of a sad ending, kind of a dark ending, but, um, I do like the way that the story was told. So, so yeah, so I think that that's it for, uh, the unexplored from science fiction theater season one, episode 28, Um, so yeah, so let me know what you thought of that. Um, next time on the podcast, I'm going to be reviewing a piano in the house, uh, the twilight zone season three, episode 22. And I'm going to be following that up with, uh, a review of the Hastings secret, uh, from science fiction theater season one, episode 29. You don't want to miss it. Um, (laughs) and once again, uh, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for tons of bonus content. Um, depending on the tier level and everything and early access to, um, to content. So check that out. Patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next week. And now here's a short clip from our Patreon exclusive RSS feed to hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content. Go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. I mean, 
this is the kind of science fiction that I love. Like, yeah, it you can throw all of the like, you know, baby versions of of characters from IPs at something, but this is the kind of science fiction that I that I go that I gravitate toward. Um obviously there's a, a dig and not so subtle dig at Star Wars and The Mandalorian. Which I enjoy The Mandalorian, but it's just I can't stand Star Wars. Anyway, I I've been on that soapbox several times. So, um so I was just very interested in that kind of thought thought process for severance and what would happen in in the event that a severed employee murders someone or can, commits a felony in the workplace. Like how is that done? How is that handled on a crim, on a criminal justice uh situation? And just my mind just kind of runs runs with that. Um, so I'm very interested in that. So this podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.